Hello everyone. Today we're going back into my civil defence archives. Today it's a document from America, from 1970, which was sent to me in a bundle by one of my hobos and patrons, John from America. So again, thank you John. I believe this is the third podcast now that we've got from all the stuff you sent me, so thank you. It's quite a thick booklet and it is called Civil Defence in the Textile, Apparel and Related Industries published by the US Department of Commerce in cooperation with the Office of Civil Defence, as I say, from 1970. Now this document caught my eye because I spent a lot of my childhood in a fabric shop. My Aunt Jeanette owned it, it sold fabric, threads, uh, buttons and curtains. It was called Fabtex and uh, sadly it's now a Papa John's pizza joint. Some of the best memories of my childhood are from the Fabtex shop because it was situated at the back of a shopping arcade, a mall for overseas listeners, and at Christmas the arcade would have a Santa's Grotto. Well, my aunt would close Fabtex early on Christmas Eve and have a Christmas party for the family, and they would pour a brandy or two for the arcade Santa, who would pop in after his last shift at the arcade, of course, still in his Santa uniform, so that us children were (laughs) were nearly delirious. There was the normal mad excitement of Christmas Eve, plus the weird sensation of the shop being closed and shuttered, but all of us still inside, with tinsel everywhere, the radio on, and tins of Quality Street and sausage rolls laid out. All the bales of fabric were, of course, edged to one side of the shop to protect them from our greasy sausage roll fingers. Can I tell you one more story about Fabtex before we go on? I've been quite badly depressed recently and thinking a lot about my gran, who died last year. And my gran worked at the shop and uh, often lacked common sense and did silly or dopey things, after which she would laugh at herself and say, Oh, your gran's daft! Well, I remember an old woman came into Fabtex looking for buttons, said she was making a cardigan for her husband, but he needed big chunky buttons as he had problems with his joints so wouldn't be able to fiddle with little dainty buttons. So something big and chunky please. So my gran was serving her and she went to the button display and scanned it for big big buttons. Something big and obvious for the poor old man's fingers. (laughs) She selected a tube of buttons. They were all stored in big plastic tubes like like a tube of Smarties. So she pulled the tube out and spilled the giant buttons on the counter for the customer to see. Well, these ones do ye, hen? Oh, aye, said the old lady. And the two of them picked up the giant buttons and marvelled at them. Oh, these are big buttons right enough. I'll take these. (laughs) The reason these buttons were so big was that they were actually plastic googly eyes meant to be sewn into teddy bears. They were big plastic chunky teddy bear eyes. So Gran sold this nice old lady six giant pairs of eyes and she went off happily to sew them onto her husband's cardigan. So memories of Fabtex. So I wonder, would this civil defence booklet have been of use to Auntie Jeanette when she ran Fabtex in the 70s and 80s? After all, all that Fabric and curtain material piled high in the shop would be highly flammable if the bomb dropped. Not to mention all the the buttons and teddy bear eyes. They would melt 
wouldn't stand a chance. So let us open this booklet and see what's inside. So again, we're looking at civil defence in the textile, apparel and related industries from 1970. Now this is a big booklet. Most civil defence booklets that I've seen are small and quite thin, quite flimsy. They're designed for civilians, they're designed to be handy. This booklet here is the size of a proper magazine and is 52 pages long. Of course, it's not aimed at civilians, so it doesn't need to bother about being small and portable and readable and short and accessible. This big lad is for managers and executives and civil defence planners. So they, the big important men, they would have received this and they would draw lessons and advice from it and then cascade it down in nice, useful little chunks to the workers. Now, the intro says that the fabric industry is essential to national well-being and to defence. Well, of course, because the industry isn't just buttons and bows. That's the end of the industry that I experienced growing up behind the counter in Fabtex, a little back street shop. But military uniforms and tents, parachutes, bandages, uh, bedding, the bedding in a hospital, these all spring from fabric also. So it's not just about teddy bear button eyes and nice curtains. The fabric industry would be essential to defence and to national survival and revival. So this booklet is to help managers in that industry prepare their businesses for nuclear war. Being very practical and what we might think of as typically American, the introductory message also says that this is to help them with rapid recovery and restoration of production. Quote, industrial preparedness is essential to effective national preparedness. The intro also says that chemical and biological attacks are considered less of a threat than a nuclear attack. Quote, Now management should take the additional protective measures outlined in this manual to minimise the effects of nuclear weapons and resume production as quickly as possible in case of an attack on the United States. Such action is good insurance. A large share of the task of building an effective civil defence rests on industry and business, since they provide the materials and tools for national defence and the goods and services essential for survival in case of attack and for recovery afterwards. So again, when we're thinking of the fabric industry, we're not thinking of my end of it, which was the cute end of it, the pretty end of it, buttons and bows, dress patterns and curtains. The booklet goes on to describe the effects of a nuclear attack and America's fallout shelter network. Well, us atomic hobos don't need to go over that again, so I'll skip that part. Although it does stress that many businesses, particularly those with sturdy buildings, have fallout shelter space both for employees and the public. And that if your space has been officially designated as a fallout shelter for public use, then it must be labelled as such with one of those famous black and yellow signs. 
and it must be stocked with sanitation equipment, food, water and medical supplies sufficient for a two-week stay. Also, you need radiation monitoring equipment. So if you've been included on the register of public fallout shelters, you can't just say, yeah, there's space down there in the basement, pile in everyone if the siren goes off. You have to follow certain rules, certain guidelines. You'll find an old episode back in my podcast archive called It's Crackers, which was about the stalking of American fallout shelters. The booklet reminds us that not every business which finds itself with a nicely protected sturdy building and suitable basement space could officially be classed as a public fallout shelter. This might be because they're in the heart of an area with loads of other shelter space so the authorities don't need to approve and label and stock yet another. Or, remember that we're talking about industry here, it might be that the business concerned carries out operations which forbid its space being used as a public shelter. I don't know, perhaps the business concerned does something potentially damaging to health? They handle asbestos or scary chemicals or something? Such a business could, yes, use any basement space for their employees to shelter in, but they couldn't have it approved as a public shelter. In that case, the company would need to supply and pay for its own shelter kit and food, water, etc. Interestingly, speaking of industries who would carry out work which was potentially risky to the public, I looked into one particular business, Burlington Industries. Now, when I said looked into, I'm not being an investigative reporter. I mean, I typed their name into my... American newspaper archives, but they feature prominently in this booklet because they were one, or they still are, one of America's massive fabric and textile companies. But they feature a lot in this booklet with a photo of their executive offices, which, the caption says, provides fallout shelter space for employees and the public. But when I turned to my newspaper archives and I found a big investigative piece from April 1980 titled Respiratory Cripples with the subheading Southern Mills Still Ignoring Brown Lung Disease Dangers. It was an article from the Boston Globe on how workers in many southern cotton mills remain at risk of bisinosis, or brown lung, caused by inhaling cotton dust. And Burlington... America's largest textile company at the time of writing, had, through its insurance carrier, paid out more workers' compensation claims than any other employer. The article ends by saying that new standards are being considered to make cotton mills safer. But the last word goes to a Burlington executive who said, We've got several sound reasons for opposing the new standard. It goes beyond what is necessary, and it could put some of our companies out of business. So there, a company who are, allegedly, operating working practices which could have made workers ill and damaged their breathing, were at the same time being held up in this civil defence booklet as a paragon of virtue. Burlington's executive offices offer shelter space for the workers and the public, 
in case of nuclear attack. But when there is no nuclear attack, those same workers might be getting hurt in other ways. But then I suppose the photo in the booklet is of the company's executive offices, so I suppose there was no dusty cotton mill on site there. This would be where the men in suits worked, not the men in overalls. Another big company who get their photo in the booklet here are Munsingware. In 1923, they were the biggest manufacturer of underwear in the world, with the slogan, Don't say underwear, say Munsingware. They were based in Minnesota, and the company had their own civil defence coordinator, who said that their HQ had fallout shelter space for 2,700 employees and the public. So it just seems a tad hypocritical for these big mammoth mills to be offering shelter and safety to employees when in ordinary working life, these mills were often not particularly safe places of work. We have all heard horror stories of the dark satanic mills of Britain's Industrial Revolution, but I had hoped or assumed that that had all been sorted out by the 1970s and 80s. It seems not. These factories and mills uh, across America would normally also have a a warning point in them, i.e. be connected to the National Warning Network, and so would sound the siren or another recognised alarm sound if an attack was detected. So all these huge mills across America, or many of them, would help sound the siren and would help offer shelter space. Now we turn to the special duties that these textile companies, and the industry as a whole, would have in the lead-up to nuclear war. It says that during peacetime, but when war is expected, although a state of emergency hasn't yet been declared, these companies would be required, or might be required by law, to drop what they're doing and take on government contracts. So stop making frilly underwear and cute pyjamas or manufacturing buttons which look like teddy bear eyes and instead fulfil contracts for, it says here, defence, atomic energy, space and other national security programmes. This is in accordance with the Defence Production Act and the Defence Materials System. Further along the chain... When a state of emergency has been declared, industry would have to, as mentioned, fulfil these government contracts, but also comply with federal regulations about the use of materials and resources. At this point, they would also need to intensify their preparedness activities. So I assume that means clear the shelter space, make sure all the supplies are present and correct, If any staff are storing their bikes in the shelter space, get them the hell out. And then, the final stage, the outbreak of nuclear war, industries would be required to, and there are four requirements here, one, cooperate with government authorities for the, quote, survival, restoration and rehabilitation of the nation. Two, provide essential goods and services at levels needed to support national objectives. Three, 
curtail any plant or facilities involved in non-essential use and, if possible, convert them to essential use. And four, if things get so bad that we found ourselves in what is called a cut-off situation, meaning that the mill or factory can receive no contact or direction from federal government, then they should accept direction from the state government until federal control is re-established. That's your dreaded cut-off situation. The next section is called Company Preparedness Measures. The first thing these mills and factories must do is to assess the, the readiness of their factory. The first thing to consider here is, well, the obvious one, are we in a target area? We can assume that most big mills or factories would be because they would probably be in industrial areas. They must also consider the the qualities of their mill to withstand attack. Is it a big, sturdy monster building with basement shelter space? Does it have a a million big tall windows making it vulnerable to blast? Certainly a lot of older factories did have these tall and plentiful windows in order to draw in as much light as possible. Indeed, the booklet shows us one of those mills, West Point Pepperell's Shawmut Mill, which has the old-style rows and rows of high tall windows. And the booklet says that the owners had bricked most of them up to increase protection against fallout. Now, that seems a bit excessive. And I wonder what the, the staff made of that. Because it would bring, of course, a reduction in light and fresh air. And you were being bricked up because of a, a war which might, well, of course, might not come. And given that, as we've already discussed, a lot of these cotton mills were already in trouble for inflicting brown lung on their staff, where is the justice in bricking up the windows and further reducing any fresh air? I wonder, was the the boss of the Shawmut Mill a particularly mad and nervous prepper? Obviously, I ran to the newspaper archives, but I couldn't find a story about the Shawmut Mill breaking up its windows. But, um, ironically, given the subject, I did find a story from Maine. I should add that the Shawmut Mill was in Alabama. Um, I did find a story from Maine in 1988 about a community who were being showered in black soot, allegedly from the local mill owned by West Point Pepperell. Yep, the same guys who owned the bricked-up Shawmut Mill. I'll quote from the article. The neighbourhood has also been showered with black soot, which he attributed to the West Point Pepperell textile plant in Biddeford. We've been getting that for 20 years, he said. Well, I wanted to find out more about this nervous mill in Alabama, which had its windows bricked up because of fear of fallout. And I managed to track it down on Street View. It is actually located in the city of Valley in Alabama and can still be seen, although it seems to be a half-demolished ruin now. It's standing in the middle of a big scrubby patch of waste ground 
surrounded by weeds and fencing. And you can still see rows and rows and rows of bricked up windows. And it's very eerie to think that all those high windows were bricked up, not because of ruin and decay and vandalism, but because of fear of nuclear war. And it still stands there now, crumbling. I will put some pictures of it up on Twitter so you can see that. And on Facebook, of course, too. Very creepy. Now, in further assessing whether your mill was um, vulnerable to nuclear attack, you would also have to consider that a lot of mills would have been historically need a water source. So does that mean an extra source of danger in nuclear war? Would the blast cause any nearby river to burst its banks and flood your shelter space and ruin your equipment? And what of the material inside your mill? We're talking textiles here, so... Is your plant going to be piled high with flammable material? All that fabric and cotton and dust? How can you guard that against fire? And do you have machinery in the plant which produces hazardous byproducts? If so, how do you safely control and dispose of those byproducts if the power grid goes down? The second thing that the textile bosses are advised to do is to as we've discussed, provide fallout shelter space for staff and, where possible, the public. We've discussed that already, and to assist with that, it's expected that the bosses will allow government agencies in to assess their space in the National Shelter Survey. Also, if your company is having a new factory built, you should consider asking the architect to design new spaces which have the necessary room and protection factor to act as a fallout shelter if it comes to that. The next rule is ensure continuity of management capability. The key thing here is that all your executives should gather in your boardroom and sign legal documents which would allow the company to make fast and legally binding decisions even in the absence of some of their board members. Normally, a a certain number of directors would be required to approve any new rules, but after a nuclear attack, we can assume that some of your guys are, shall we say, going to be incapacitated. They're going to be dead or simply unreachable. So the company needs to have the flexibility to make decisions and move on with a small, reduced number of decision-making directors. So make sure, the booklet advises, that there is no need for a quorum, that is a set number of directors giving approval and signing documents. Award yourselves the power to make major decisions and act and adapt if there is only three, two or one of you left after a nuclear war. Another good move in ensuring continuity after attack would be to nominate an alternative company headquarters in a relatively safe location. You should also draw up a succession list, setting out who can step into which role if the current occupant is killed. So there should be no squabbling for power and company control, just consult the appointed names on the list. You may also wish to drop a plan for replacing your production personnel. 
Now, you might ask, how on earth do you get new trained staff after a nuclear war? Because the book, it keeps going on about how essential the textile industry is to national recovery. Well, you need staff for that. Where are the staff going to come from if millions of Americans are dead? The best idea, the booklet says, is to strike up agreements with other local plants. So if your guys get incinerated, then we will give you some of ours. You could also reach out to retired employees or others who have recently left, resigned for whatever reason. If they're still alive, of course, you could try and persuade them to come back. And maybe you could do that with the promise of food and shelter. The booklet goes on to say that the company must publicise their emergency planning. No point having the management draw it all up and then keep it for their eyes only. The thing needs to be shared, not only with the workers, but with the stockholders and with the public. So the company are advised to make use of local TV and radio ads, posters, the factory's PA system, company meetings, and, uh, I love this one, the company newsletter. (laughs) In my experience, when I worked in offices, the the company newsletters were always dull. Uh, Sharon has raised £47.93 for the local hospice. Michael is taking a sabbatical to study for his accountancy thing. And Dress Down Fridays continue to be a success, but can we all please remember the rule about no t-shirts bearing slogans? Well, back in 1970, this booklet was suggesting that companies use the company newsletter to prepare them all for nuclear war. You might also wonder why the company would encourage to make use of local TV and radio ads to publicise their individual civil defence plans. Well, the booklet explains, quote, Industrial and business employers occupy a position of prestige and influence in their communities. If it is known that they are making survival plans, their employees and other citizens are likely to do likewise in their homes and communities. Well, I wonder, this um, might have been the case back when the local mill or factory might indeed have been properly local with roots and history and influence in the town. But these days when small mills and factories tend to have been bought up and subsumed by big global companies, I think their influence on local ordinary Joes would be less. I might shrug if Apple or Microsoft started doing emergency planning, but if my local deli across the road started it, then I would certainly sit up and pay attention. And I would ask what the implications were for their warm Nutella croissants. The rest of the booklet deals with post-attack procedures, and it's all standard stuff we've read elsewhere. Uh, Get your people into the shelters, have a shelter manager to coordinate and calm and organise them for the dreadful fortnight underground. Then, when fallout has decreased, you try to get your mill up and running again because the nation will need stuff. Blankets and bedding and bandages and clothing. But before you can get your mill running again, assuming it has not been damaged by blast or fire, 
you need to get your radiation monitoring equipment out and test all the cotton fibres and the bales of fabric. Make sure they are safe to work with. Check the machinery, hose down the floors, but the message is certainly get back to work. So I liked this booklet um, because, again, because of my childhood in the fabric shop, I thought the fabric and the textile industry is, well, not trivial, of course, but, you know, it's not, they're not making tanks and aeroplanes and bombs. They're, you know, underwear, curtains, cardigans, teddy bears. And this booklet reminds me that, no, the fabric and textile industry is actually bloody essential Military uniforms, uh, tents, parachutes, bandages, hospital bedding, the list goes on and on. Textile and fabric industries would be essential, certainly. At one end of the industry, you have your little backstreet shops selling buttons to old ladies so they can make their husband a nice cardigan. And at the other end of the scale, they're kitting out the military and supplying hospitals. And this big chunky magazine-sized booklet of, I believe, 52 pages reinforces again and again how essential these mills and factories were. So I hope you have enjoyed our quick look at the textile industry in America's preparations for nuclear war. And thank you for letting me tell you some hopefully funny stories at the beginning about my gran working behind the counter at Fabtex. Now, what I will do is um, take photographs from this booklet. I won't photograph every page, because as I said, it's 52 pages long, but I w there are lots of in interesting illustrations in it. So I will take some interesting pictures from it and upload them to my Patreon page. So if you're a patron, you can log on and um, have a look through. And when we're talking about Patreon, let me thank my newest patrons who have signed up. Thank you to Mark Riveron, Stephen McCarthy, Jamie Hodge, James Spencer, Paul Johnson, Gemma Scott and Nathan. And if you're a patron at uh, £7 a month and above, you should have received by now uh, a postcard from Pack Green Nuclear Bunker. I was there a couple of weeks ago doing a, a book signing and we all watched threads together. Then there was a Q&A about threads. We watched that down in the, the war room of the bunker. I think there were about 50 people there. It was a great night. So I... Got lots of postcards and little souvenirs, little trinkets, key rings, badges, magnets, etc. from Hack Green and I've sent them out to patrons who are at £7 and above. That's one of your rewards, postcards and little gifts, etc. So you should have received them by now. If you're overseas, of course, they will take a bit longer, but they have all been posted out. So thank you everyone for supporting the podcast through, through Patreon. And I will now go and upload pictures from the civil defence booklet that we've just discussed. So thank you all for listening. <laughs>